Really great to see every single one of you, especially if you're a guest. We're really delighted to be in the presence of our great and amazing God to worship with you and worship Him together today. I hope and pray your Christmas was worshipful and joyous around the Hopkins house. Ours sure was. And I can hardly believe, like, just like that, it's over, right? And then all of a sudden, it's almost the new year and like 2013. Here we go, right? Buckle in. I've talked with you before about how much I enjoy watching the sport of wrestling, right? And I'm not talking about the WWF kind of wrestling. That's fake wrestling, just so you know. I'm talking about real wrestling, like folk-style, scholastic wrestling, as it's sometimes called. Two of our sons, Joshua and Silas, they wrestle for the Bozeman Hawks. And it is just, I can't say it uh, enough, it's just a fantastic sport. It is a tough, tough sport. And I really think it's fair to call wrestling the toughest six minutes in all of sports, right? Because it's just you and your opponent and you're in the middle of the mat and you're grappling tied up hard, like every muscle in your body firing. Like it's just hard. Six straight minutes, three two-minute periods or until one opponent defeats the other, either by pinning him or by technical fall, which happens anytime you score 15 points more than your opponent does. And it's just this fantastic sport. I tell people all the time that watching Joshua and Silas wrestle makes me wish that I would have wrestled when I was in high school, and it doesn't have anything to do with me just wanting to put on a singlet. I promise. It's just a great sport. And I think part of the reason I'm such a fan of the sport of wrestling is because it so closely parallels the experience of everyday life. Sometimes, right, in life you're on top, you're winning, it's going great, you've got your opponent on the run. And then other times in life you're flat on your back just fighting to stay in the match. Stay in, stay in. Wrestling very, very closely parallels the experience of everyday life. Winning some days, losing other days. But whether you're winning or losing, you're always struggling, fighting, straining to stay in it, to fight, to win another day. And the man who I'm calling, and this is just my judgment call, the world's greatest wrestler, is a guy named Jacob. And you're probably thinking right now, well, that's easy. Jacob's the guy who wrestled with God, and you'd be absolutely right if you thought that. He did. We're not going to talk about that story today. Next week, yes. Today, no. Because, see, before Jacob ever wrestled with God, he spent a great deal of his life wrestling with people, didn't he? I'm not talking about wrestling on a mat wearing headgear in a singlet either. Long before Jacob ever wrestled in God, with God, see, he engaged in this very, very determined struggle with some of the closest people to him in his whole life, which is exactly where we're going to focus our attention today. We're going to survey a good deal of the early life of Jacob, and we're going to watch his determined wrestling matches unfold and learn from him and learn from his narrative how even in the midst of some of the most knockdown, drag-out, brutal wrestling matches, God is unfurling his master plan. If you have a text, if you want to follow along in the Bible, you're welcome to do that. Genesis chapter 25, or you can follow along with me on the screens. Genesis 25, starting in verse 19. This is the account of the family of Isaac, the son of Abraham. When Isaac was 40 years old, he married Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean from Paddan Aram, and the sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac pleaded with the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was unable to have children. The Lord answered Isaac's prayer, and Rebekah became pregnant with twins. 
but the two children struggled with each other in her womb. So she went to ask the Lord about it. Why is this happening to me, she asked. And the Lord told her, the sons in your womb will become two nations. From the very beginning, the two nations will be rivals. One nation will be stronger than the other. Your older son will serve your younger son. And when the time came to give birth, Rebecca discovered that she did indeed have twins. The first one was very red at birth and covered with thick hair, like a fur coat. He got to have like a built-in fur coat. God made him that way, so they named him Esau. Then the other twin was born with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so they named him Jacob. Isaac, catch this, was 60 years old when the twins were born. We have twins, Dan and I do, and I was 30 when they were born, and it darn near killed me. I can't imagine having twins at 60 Isaac was certainly a man after God. And notice in that narrative, even before Jacob was born, he was caught up in this profoundly determined wrestling match, even in utero. As Esau's twin in Rebekah's womb, Jacob was jostling for position, holding his brother back, trying to get out ahead and was actually born grasping Esau's heel. The name Jacob actually means healer, as in H-E-E-L-E-R, as in one who would grab the heel of another, as well as being translated as he deceives. Healer and he deceives. Quite a name, Jacob is. And can you just hear Jacob and Esau's mom, Rebecca, like begging God to tell her why there was this knockdown, drag out, wrestling match raging in her belly? Why, God? And he answers real directly. It says, yeah, there's absolutely two kids in there, two sons, as well as two nations. And they're growing inside of you. And right from the get-go, they're going to be divided. They're going to be divided from the day they're born, before they're born. One's going to be stronger than the other. One's going to serve the younger. And all Rebecca could do, I mean, what do you do when you hear that kind of news, right? You shrug your shoulders and go, okay, God, I'm trusting you. It sounds like a mess to me, but I'm hanging on tightly to you. Even before he was born, Jacob was engaged in quite a wrestling match. And then the story of his life rolls on, Genesis 25, 27 to 28. As the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter. He was an outdoorsman, but Jacob had a quiet temperament, preferring to stay at home. Isaac loved Esau because he enjoyed eating the wild game Esau brought home, but Rebekah loved Jacob, and you notice how the scriptural text just skips over Jacob and Esau's early life, and all of a sudden, like from being born to all grown up, and what we know is in their grown up days, Esau was a skillful hunter. He was an outdoorsman. He was a, like a Bozeman guy, right? You sort of picture him. And Jacob, at first brush with the text, he was a more quiet, stay-at-home type, but I got to tell you, that's not altogether true. A more accurate, more correct translation of the text would be that Jacob was a man who dwelled in tents, which is the text's really subtle way of communicating that Jacob wasn't just staying home in his tent all day, like knitting or something, but he was. Think about a, a guy who dwells in tents. What's his occupation? What's his role? A camper is not right, just so you know. He's a shepherd, right? He's a shepherd. A man who dwells in tents is a shepherd. That was very likely Jacob's 
occupation. And we notice something else that gets to the heart of this wrestling match ongoing, all these different wrestling matches in Jacob's life. We notice how Isaac's love for his son Esau hinged on exactly what his son did for him. Right? Esau's a skillful hunter. He goes out to the hills and he brings home tasty morsels for his father to eat. And Isaac loves him for that. But Jacob was loved, favored even, by his mom, Rebecca, with this unconditioned, unqualified. You don't have to do anything for me, Isaac. You don't have to hunt or anything else. I just love you unconditionally. And even there, you see this sort of sibling wrestling with dad favoring one and mom favoring the other. This is this wrestle. Look at Genesis 25, starting in verse 29. This story will be familiar to some of you. One day when Jacob was cooking some stew, I hate stew, by the way. It's just not good. I don't know why anybody would even make it. Esau arrived home from the wilderness exhausted and hungry. And Esau said to Jacob, right, like food is meant to be eaten individually. Like if you're going to have meat, you eat meat. If you're going to eat potatoes, you eat potatoes. You put it all in a pot and it's just mush, gross. That's not in the Bible. (laughs) Esau said to Jacob, I'm starved. Give me some of that red stew. This is how Esau got his other name, Edom, which means red. All right, Jacob replied, but trade me your rights as the firstborn son. Esau says, look, I'm dying of starvation. What good is my birthright to me now? But Jacob said, first you must swear that your birthright is mine. So Esau swore an oath, thereby selling all his rights as the firstborn to his brother Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and lentil stew. Esau ate the meal and got up and left. He showed contempt for his rights as the firstborn. And this is quite a story. Esau comes home from hunting. He's starving. He uses the words, I'm starving to death, probably hyperbole, right? He's probably not literally dying of starvation. And and the text translated literally means, stuff me with that red stuff. Stuff me with that red stuff stuff, that gross stew. And you pick up on Esau's really poor manners, don't you? He's impatient, he's famished, he's just sort of pounding his fork on the table, he doesn't care what's cooking in the pot, I just want it and I want it now. And wouldn't you just expect that the guy who's standing in the kitchen cooking a pot of food would have just fed his own brother, right? No strings attached. I love you, brother, sure, you're hungry, let's eat not Jacob. Not even close. Because see, Jacob, he's a hustler. Jacob is like a wheeler dealer, a self-promoter, shrewd and cunning and devious, manipulative. And he commands the very highest price you can possibly imagine. His brother's own birthright in exchange for a gross stew meal. And Esau, he, he goes for it, doesn't he? He goes, sure, you can have it, dumb birthright, I don't need, what am I going to, what good is that thing. And you just wonder, Esau, you don't get it, do you? You don't really have a clue about what it is that you just bartered away for one quick meal. Esau has a problem, obviously, seeing beyond that very moment, seeing beyond the strong, the very strong hunger pangs he was experiencing after that day's hunting outing. And you back up and you see that what's at the core of the matter is that Esau didn't see, he didn't appreciate, he didn't understand how significant a gift his birthright was. He didn't understand that he was trading away his entire spiritual inheritance right 
there. He was, up to the moment he traded it away, a claimant of the covenant that God had made with his grandfather, Abraham, through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That birthright was really the entitlement of the firstborn son to, watch this, be one of the links in the line of descent by which Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the whole world, would be born through the lineage of Abraham. They had the privilege of holding and handing on to others this remarkable, amazing gift of salvation, eternal life, new quality and quantity of life right here and right now. And he just trades it away. And even in that setup, you see this like wrestling, there's this wrestling, Jacob's jostling for position and he's out to get anything and everything he can get. And then we turn the corner to this unbelievable narrative. One day when Isaac was old and turning blind, he called for Esau, his older son, and said, my son. Yes, father, Esau replied. I'm an old man now, Isaac said, and I don't know when I may die. Take your bow and quiver full of arrows and go out into the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare my favorite dish, you know the one. It's not stew. And bring it here for me to eat. Then I will pronounce the blessing that belongs to you, my firstborn son, before I die. But Rebekah overheard what Isaac had said to his son Esau. So when Esau left to hunt for the wild game, she said to her son Jacob, Listen, I overheard your father say to Esau, Bring me some wild game, prepare me a delicious meal. Then I will bless you in the Lord's presence before I die. Now my son, listen to me. Do exactly as I tell you. Go out to the flocks, bring me two fine young goats. I'll use them to prepare your father's favorite dish. Then take the food to your father so he can eat it and bless you before he dies. But look, Jacob replied to Rebekah, my brother Esau is a hairy man. My skin is smooth. What if my father touches me? He'll see I'm trying to trick him and then he'll curse me instead of blessing me. But his mother said, let the curse fall on me then, my son. Just do what I tell you. Go out and get the goats for me. So Jacob went out and he got the young goats for his mother. Rebekah took them and prepared a delicious meal just the way Isaac liked it. Then she took Esau's favorite clothes which were there in the house and gave them to her younger son Jacob. She covered his arms and the smooth part of his neck with the skin of the young goats. Then she gave Jacob the delicious meal including freshly baked bread. So Jacob took the food to his father. My father, he said, yes, my son, Isaac answered. Who are you, Esau or Jacob? Jacob replied, it's Esau, your firstborn son. Liar. Right? Like, liar, liar. I've done as you told me. Here's the wild game. Now sit up and eat it so you can give me your blessing. Isaac asked, how did you find it so quickly, my son? Well, the Lord your God put it in my path right out there in the pen, Jacob replied. Then Isaac said to Jacob, come closer so I can touch you and make sure you're really Esau, because this is all pretty fishy. So Jacob went closer to his father, and Isaac touched him. The voice is Jacob. The hands are Esau's covered in goat skin, Isaac said. But he did not recognize Jacob because Jacob's hands felt hairy, just like Esau's. So Isaac prepared to bless Jacob. But are you really my son, Esau? He asked. Yes, I am, Jacob replied. Bold-faced lie again. Then Isaac said, now my son, bring me the wild game. Let me eat it, and then I will give you my blessing. So Jacob took the food to his father, and Isaac ate it. He also drank the wine that Jacob served him. That might have helped, right? Loosen old Isaac up. And Isaac said to Jacob, please come a little closer. Kiss me, my son. So Jacob went over and kissed him. And when Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, he was finally convinced and he blessed his son. He said, ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of the outdoors, which the Lord 
has blessed. From the dew of heaven and the riches of the earth, may God always give you abundant harvest of grain and bountiful new wine. May many nations become your servants and may they bow down to you. May you be the master over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. All who curse you will be cursed. All who bless you will be blessed. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob and almost before Jacob had left his father, Esau returned from his hunt. Esau prepared a delicious meal, brought it to his father. Then he said, sit up, my father, and eat my wild game so that you can give me your blessing. But Isaac asked him, who are you? Esau replied, it's your son, your firstborn Esau. And Isaac began to tremble uncontrollably, and he said, then who just served me wild game? I've already eaten it, and I blessed him just before you came. And yes, that blessing must stand. When Esau heard his father's words, he let out a loud and bitter cry. You can imagine. Oh, my father, what about me? Bless me too, he begged. But Isaac said, your brother was here and he tricked me. He has taken away your blessing. Esau exclaimed, no wonder his name is Jacob, for now he has cheated me twice. First he took my rights as the firstborn, which that's not entirely true. Remember Esau, you traded stew for birthright. You did that. And now he has stolen my blessing. That part's true. Oh, haven't you saved even one blessing from me? Isaac said to Esau, I've made Jacob your master and have declared that all his brothers will be his servants. I've guaranteed him an abundance of grain and wine, what is left for me to give you, my son. Esau pleaded, but do you have only one blessing? Oh, my father, please bless me too. Then Esau broke down and wept. And finally, his father Isaac said to him, you will live away from the richness of the earth and away from the dew of the heaven above. You will live by your sword and you will serve your brother. But when you decide to break free, you will shake his yoke from your neck. From that time on, Esau hated Jacob because their father had given Jacob the blessing. And Esau began to scheme. I will soon be mourning my father's death. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. You talk about wrestling, wrestling. And up to this point in his life, Jacob, he's been really, really good at creating his own wrestling matches with all the people around him. And then one day, here comes Rebecca, his very own mom, and she manages to broker the wrestling match that eventually would be his undoing. Now, mom certainly may have made the invitation to Jacob to deceive his father and further shame his brother, absolutely. But the decision to follow through on that plan, it all rested on Jacob. He had a decision to make. Would he ratify his inheritance through dishonor and deceit, or would he wait? Wait on God's blessing and God's time and God's way. And we know how that's going to go, right? Because Jacob, he's ever the opportunist, and he, let me have that, he says. I'm, I'm taking it. And wrestle, wrestle, wrestle. And Rebecca, she's not dumb. And she realizes that she's gotten Jacob into real deep weeds with his brother, and so she intervenes, stepping in, warning Jacob of Esau's vow to kill him, actually influencing Isaac to direct that Jacob should go and find himself a wife from among his own people, the darn women around here. They're just no good. You should go back to where we came from, and you should find yourself a real wife, because these darn women. And that's exactly how it goes. Instead of staying around, instead of pressing in, instead of wrestling through the mess that he and his mom have made with dad and brother, Jacob, he jets off to Uncle Laban's place, back at the family's ancestral home in Haran, and we pick up the story there. Laban said to him, that's Jacob, you shouldn't work for me without pay just because we're relatives. Tell me how much your wages should be. 
Now, Laban had two daughters. The older daughter was named Leah. The younger one was Rachel. And there was no sparkle in Leah's eyes. And you should read the commentators, and you should see the gymnastics they try to do to explain exactly what this means, no sparkle in Leah's eyes. I think we get a little clue about what sparkle means when the text talks about Rachel, but Rachel had a beautiful figure and a lovely face, sparkle. And since Jacob was in love with Rachel, he told her father, I'll work for you. Now get this, I'll work for you for seven years if you'll give me Rachel, your younger daughter, as my wife. That's the bride price. See, in that day, grooms had to show up with a pile of money or something to pay the father of the woman who he wants to marry this substantial sum. And Jacob, he doesn't have anything. He's got blood, sweat, and tears, and he says, okay, I love her a lot. She has lots of sparkle, and so I'll give you seven years. And what's Laban say? Agreed, gladly. I'd rather give her to you than anyone else. Stay here and work with me. Be my slave, in essence, for seven years, Jacob. So Jacob, he worked seven years to pay for Rachel. But his love for her was so strong that it seemed to him but a few days. Isn't that romantic? But a few days, seven years of blood, sweat, and tears, slave labor. But it was like a few days. Finally, the time came for him to marry her. I fulfilled my agreement. You can just sort of see him checking off the days on the calendar, right? Countdown, countdown. I fulfilled my agreement, Jacob said. Now give me my wife so that I can sleep with her. And he just gets right to the heart of the matter, you know, like see what this is all about, really. So Laban, and lots of sparkle there. So Laban invited everyone in the neighborhood and prepared a wedding feast. But that night when it was dark, Laban took Leah to Jacob and he slept with her. Like, this is scandalous. I mean, like, this is the Bible. And I mean, whoa, Fifty Shades of Grey has nothing on this. That's what you pretending you don't know what that is. Laban had given Leah a servant, Zilpah, to be her maid. But when Jacob woke up in the morning, it was Leah. What have you done to me? Jacob raged at Laban. I worked seven years for Sparkle-Eyed Girl. Her name's Rachel, and you've tricked me. It's not our custom here to marry off a younger daughter ahead of the firstborn, Laban replied. But wait until the bridal week is over, the week of wedding celebration. Wait till that's over. Then we'll give you Rachel too, provided you promise to work another seven years as a slave for me. So Jacob agreed. He loved her a lot to work seven more years. A week after Jacob had married Leah, Laban gave him Rachel too. And Laban gave Rachel a servant, Bilhah, to be her maid. So Jacob slept with Rachel too, and he loved her much more than Leah. He then stayed and worked for Laban the additional seven years. He's a stand-up guy, but you see it's just more and more and more wrestling for Jacob. And you see what's going on with Laban and Jacob in that scene is the time has finally come for Jacob to pay for having stolen his brother's blessing. It's time to pay up, Jacob. Laban even says as much. He knows everything that went on. He says, look, it's not our custom here for matters to be conducted like they are in uncivilized Canaan, back where you're from, where a younger sibling can just bypass the firstborn and steal his rights. That doesn't, that doesn't play here. In Haran, this is civilized society. The firstborn must be given firstborn rights. That's how it works here, Jacob. 
And Jacob's standing there like, what, what can he do? His name means cheater. So like, what's he going to say to Uncle Laban? He's administering, Laban is measure for measure penalty on Jacob's head. Jacob's mother, Rebekah, get the scene, took advantage of the father's blindness to replace her firstborn son with the younger son. In a remarkably parallel episode, the father, Laban, that's Rebekah's brother, by the way, takes advantage of the darkness, which prevents Jacob from seeing the bride's identity to substitute his younger daughter with the firstborn. Sound familiar? And Jacob, eventually, he gets Rachel, the bride he really wants, but it, it costs him, and he's ticked. It's wrestling and wrestling and wrestling. And Jacob eventually heard God's call to return to Canaan. So they left kind of under cover of darkness, taking his wives and children, and now his vast flocks and servants that he's managed to accumulate. You ought to read that narrative sometime about how God worked all of that out. Pretty amazing story, fun read. And Laban, he learns that Jacob and everyone else has left, and he's mad. First, he's mad that they left without kissing him goodbye, and then he's mad because he discovers that they stole his precious idols that he worshipped at his house, and it's just kind of the continuation of the family legacy of deception. It's just how things go with them. Rachel stole dad's idols, and so Laban comes after them, and she manages to keep the idols hidden during the search, and Laban and Jacob, they have words, but they manage to eventually part company after swearing this oath to each other. We're not going to invade each other's lands and like, wrestle, wrestle, wrestle. Now get this, though. In order for Jacob to get all the way home, he's got to face the longest standing wrestling match that he's had going his entire life with his brother Esau. He's got to face the music, and this is how it plays out. Genesis 32, starting in verse 3. Then Jacob sent messengers ahead to his brother Esau, who was living in the region of Seir in the land of Edom. He told them, give this message to my master Esau. Notice the posture that he engages his brother. Give this message to my master Esau. This is humility, right? Humble greetings from your servant Jacob. Until now I have been living with Uncle Laban, and now I own cattle, donkeys, flocks of sheep and goats, many servants, both men and women alike. I've sent these messengers to inform my Lord of my coming, hoping that you will be friendly to me, like hoping you will be friendly to me. After delivering the message, the messengers returned to Jacob and reported, we met your brother Esau, he's already on his way here with an army of 400 men. Jacob was terrified at the news, you would be too, right? He divided his household along with the flocks and herds and camels into two groups. He pulls a little wealth management stunt here. He thought if Esau meets one group and attacks it, perhaps the other group can escape. And Jacob prayed, O God of my grandfather Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord, you told me, return to your own land and to your relatives. You promised me I will treat you kindly. I'm not worthy of all the unfailing love and faithfulness you've shown to me, your servant. When I left home and crossed the Jordan River, I owned nothing except a walking stick. That's true. Now my household fills two large camps. Oh Lord, please rescue me from the hand of my brother Esau. I'm afraid that he's coming to attack me along with my wives and children. But you promise me, you see that again and again, you promise me, God, I will surely treat you kindly. I will multiply your descendants until they become as numerous as the sands along the seashore. Too many to count. Jacob stayed where he was for the night. Then he selected these gifts from his possessions to present to his brother Esau. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 30 female camels with their young, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, and 10 
male donkey. He's like, Merry Christmas. That's quite a bunch of gifts. And he divided these animals into herds and assigned each to different servants. Then he told the servants, go ahead of me with the animals. Keep some distance, though, between the herds. He gave these instructions to the men leading the first group. When my brother Esau meets you, he's going to ask, whose servants are you? Where are you going? Who owns all these animals? You must reply, they belong to your servant Jacob, but they're a gift for his master Esau. Look, he is coming right behind us. Jacob gave the same instructions to the second and third herdsmen and to all who followed behind the herds. You must say the same thing to Esau when you meet him. And be sure to say, look, your servant Jacob is right behind us. Jacob thought, I will try to appease him by sending gifts ahead of me. When I see him in person, perhaps then he'll be friendly to me after I've buttered him all up real good. So the gifts were sent on ahead while Jacob himself spent that night in the camp. And isn't it just true that we pray our very best prayers when we're flat on our backs, about to get pinned, and we have absolutely nothing of our own going for us? We just do. And that's exactly the place Jacob is. St. Augustine said the very best disposition for praying is that of being desolate, forsaken, and stripped of everything. And that's exactly where Jacob was. He hears that his brother and his troops are on their way, and he's filled with fear. So what's the first thing he does after he executes his little wealth management strategy? He prays. He prays. And notice exactly how he begins and ends that prayer He reminds God of his promises. You promise me, God. You promise me. And that was the exact right thing to do. It is for us, too. Certainly, Jacob may have been one of the most conniving, manipulative men we ever read about in scriptures, but he was dead on center by appealing to everything that God had already said to him, and God had said much to Jacob. God had promised to be with him. God had promised to bring him safely back to his land. And God cannot lie. He's the only one who cannot lie. Because God is simply truth. God is truth. And he's always and forever going to do just what he promised he would do. And Jacob knew that. And Jacob knew that there was rest in the integrity of God's word. Rest from being a hustler. Rest from wheeling and dealing. Rest from all the self-promotion, from all the shrewd, cunning, devious, manipulative ways that he'd been up to. But Jacob stood on God's actual word because he knew that there was rest in God's word. Because he knew that God wasn't going to do anything more or anything less than everything that he said he was going to do. And here's the deal. We were all, much more than we'd like to admit, an awful lot like Jacob, aren't we? We're wrestling with people all around us every single day. Now, sure, most of us are not cheating our siblings out of birthrights and deathbed blessings. Most of us aren't cheating our in-laws out of great deals of their wealth, like Jacob did. But lots and lots of times, in lots and lots of ways, lots and lots of us, me included, are sort of flim-flamming our way through life, playing one shell game after another, pushing, shoving, running roughshod over anyone and everyone who happens to get in our way, wrestling, wrestling, just like Jacob did. And all that wrestling alienates friends, and it alienates neighbors, and it alienates family, and it alienates co-workers 
lots of us, we leave quite a wake behind us of a mess, an awful mess. And yet the thing that's so incredibly striking about Jacob is that despite all of his failures and all of his flaws, which are too numerous to count, kind of like mine, he yearned, at the end of the day, he yearned for God. He hungered and thirsted for God deep in his heart. And we might not see it in all those narratives we just read, but God knew it. God absolutely knew that Jacob wanted him more than he wanted anything else at the end of the day. And the deal with God is he'll never, ever force himself on anyone who doesn't want him. God's a gentleman, quite a gentleman, and he will never force himself on anyone who doesn't want him. But here's the other thing about God is that he fervently seeks after people who do want him, no matter who they are, no matter what they've done. And from the story of Jacob all the way to today, God is seeking men and women and boys and girls, not because of the good things that you've done, but simply because you want him. And the truth is that he wants you too. He wants to make you, me, all of us, his sons and his daughters. Do you want him? Do you want him today more than you want anything else? And understand this, God's never ever surprised by all the wrestling matches in your life or mine. He wasn't surprised by a single thing that Jacob ever did, and he pulled some real stunts, didn't he? And neither is God alarmed by our struggles and our failures, just like he wasn't alarmed by any of Jacob's. And you can take this to the bank. God is not ever going to give up on you. God is not ever going to go away until his work in you, me, us, is finished. Do you want him. Take your stuff and set it aside if you would please and I just invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads and if you just give yourself to that very question do you want him? want him more than you want anything else and there may be some of you here you hear Jacob's story and you just say you know Jacob's got nothing on me you should hear my story God still wants you God's still pursuing you. The only question that's left for you to answer is, do you want him? Do you want him? And I just invite you to be real gut level honest with him in all that. Do you want him or not? And if you do, you might have some forgiveness work to do, and I invite and encourage you to start the new year by doing that very thing. Maybe just have a 
God, forgive me of all of this session with him. And you write it all down and you dump it all out and you back up the dump truck and you just say, God, forgive me for I repent of. God, forgive me for I repent of. And you just line by line by line by line. And you just come home to him. And then maybe some others today, God's knocking hard on the door of your heart today and he's inviting you, he's asking you to take the step of saving faith in Jesus Christ. He's inviting you to salvation from your sin once and for all. That, by the way, is your greatest need. Salvation from your sin. That's it right there. That's what all of us need more than anything else in this world. Salvation from our sin. And if that's the desire of your heart today, you can trust Jesus today. You can trust him in saving faith once and for all by praying along with me. I invite you to pray right where you're sitting, a prayer that goes like this. Jesus, I get it. I'm a sinner. And I've been trying real hard for a lot of years to try to save myself. But I can't do it. I need you. I want you, Jesus. And so with all the faith I can spark up right here, right now, I gratefully receive your gift of salvation. I gratefully step into my greatest need and I trust you, Jesus. And I thank you, Jesus, for taking my sin and my shame and all my mess and for dying on the cross for me and for giving me eternal life, life that starts right here, right now in you. I want you, Jesus. And if you're a person who's stepping into saving faith in Jesus Christ today, that is the biggest decision of your whole life. And it's such a big deal around here, we like to acknowledge when people make that choice. And so I'm going to ask you to do that with me. Every head is bowed, every eye is closed. It's you, me, and God in this room right now. If you prayed with me just then to give your heart and life to Jesus, would you just raise your hand right now and lock eyes with me? And just let me stand with you. Let me agree with you. You can do that right now. There, in the back, absolutely, yes, absolutely, yes. Yeah, right here to my right, absolutely, yes. Way to go. Jesus, we thank you so much especially for these today who are crossing the line of faith in you, who are saying, Jesus, I want you. I need you more than I need anything else. Thank you for the forgiveness that you're granting today. We praise you and celebrate you for all of that. And then, God, we thank you and praise you as well that even in the midst of the wrestling that happens in this life, that you're in it that you're not giving up on us, you're not walking away from us, but that you're actually unfurling your plan. And for those who love you, those who call you Lord and Savior, your plan is a good one. A plan for a hope and a future. 
And so, Jesus, we cling to that. We cling to you with everything we've got. And we trust. We trust you. And we want you, Jesus, more than anything else. We want 